What happens when you're a pro-life Christian and you unexpectedly find yourself expecting a baby in the middle of a pandemic? We're also going to be talking with Zito Madu about a piece he wrote for Plow about rap as the great escape from the violence of poverty and as survivor's remorse music. I'm Susanna Black, senior editor at Plow. I'm Peter Momsen, editor of the Plow Quarterly, and this is the Plowcast. So this is the fourth episode in a six-part series on nonviolence, the violence of love, our most recent issue. Uh, make sure you look us up and give us a follow on your podcast platform of choice. And while you're at it, subscribe to Plow. Go to plow.com slash subscribe. And now to the conversation. So our first topic, Susanna, is one of the pieces that is really unexpected in our new issue by Gracie Olmsted, The Risk of Gentleness, Welcoming the Baby I Did Not Want. And she writes uh, that she was shocked to find she was pregnant during the COVID pandemic, and then learned how subversive being hospitable to a new baby can be. Uh, this piece really kind of got inside my head a bit. Uh, she, she writes how they, she knew she was expecting last Easter, so Easter 2020, and then I think her baby was born uh, right before Christmas. And it is a very cute baby. And so, of course, we should talk about who Gracie Olmsted is first, um, because she has a new book out, and that's one reason we're talking about the article. Uh, which uprooted. is Uprooted. Um, and I've known Gracie, and I've not read it yet, because um, I just got it. Uh, but I've known Gracie for probably, I don't know, eight years or something like that. And she and I, uh, I feel like we were part of the early front porch republic like back when we didn't really know what to call ourselves other than like localists or crunchy conservatives or like weird christians who liked organic food like it was very it was this very kind of strange um batch of people many of whom were on twitter some of whom weren't who kind of who who uh, found each other and became friends and ended up going to a bunch of different kind of like conferences together and writing for a lot of the same places. And, um, I think Gracie was, a um, a, an intern at the American conservative magazine and then has written for various places. Um, but she's been focusing lately and kind of her whole, well, her whole life, she's been focusing on, questions of um, localism being rooted in places and what it means to, um, to to allow yourself to experience life as something given rather than as a kind of self-invention. And through that um, whole, whole process of um, this kind of intellectual project and life project of hers, and since, since I met her, she got married and had two babies and then a third baby and um i've you know visited her and her husband uh, outside of dc and they're absolutely fantastic people um she's also been very uh sort of entwined in the work of wendell berry um so she's kind of mr Bear, one of mr berry's kind of young interlocutors i'd say um and she sees her project as very much kind of um complimentary to his, I think. Um, but she's she's trying to investigate and carve out space for a, a kind of a, um, 
a really countercultural way of life um, that has elements of Bruderhoffiness, that has elements of um, sort of low technology, that has elements of um, moderate amounts of self-sufficiency. But she's doing this, you know, very much kind of as a slightly suburban mom of three, um, you know, trying to figure out with her husband how to make a living, but also how to um, grow a bunch of their own vegetables and how to intentionally cultivate groups of friends that stay together for, you know, a decade or so and longer. Um, and she's just someone who very much walks the walk in a really chill and like non-dramatic kind of way. And the walk that she walks is just kind of trying to be a Christian and a wife and a mother and a writer and a woman and, um, and a good friend in the world. You know, having given the teaser for her article, I almost hesitate to say too much more about her article per se, although you may have some things you want to add, um, Susanna, but she's all those things you were just saying. And yet as a pro-life mom trying to live, you know, in a kind of rooted Wendell Berry inspired way, when they were expecting their third kid, she like so many, kind of had to struggle to welcome that one more child. It did remind me of a piece we published in our last issue by Ross Douth that the case for one more child, um, because that's exactly what she faced, right? So oh, after we published that piece, one of my fellow editors here up at the Bruderhof, who was a mom of five herself, said uh, her first reaction on reading the title was, uh, she, that she threw the magazine, she actually threw Plow Magazine across the room and said, only somebody who's had a baby themselves has a right to write this article. And then uh, it, it took a week for her to talk herself around to read the article, and then she absolutely agreed with Ross. Um, and then shortly afterwards, we got uh, Gracie's article in, and she told essentially the story, um, very honestly, in a way that you don't, often get from Christian pro-life people who understandably always want to emphasize how wonderful it is to have kids and how babies are the greatest gift and how we should always welcome them. Uh, but there's a struggle, especially in the way that society is set up, in the way our work lives work, um, and what it means to be a parent and especially a mom, that there's circumstances and certainly a pandemic is one of them when the thought of having another child can seem overwhelming. And I really appreciated the honesty with which she told that story and kind of got through to the other side of it. And it's, it's a really, um, you know, it's not a brutally difficult um, story in certain ways. Like she acknowledges that she is, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, it was not that difficult for her to say yes to this unexpected COVID baby. Um, she has a, she and her husband both have incomes. They're, they're stable. Um, but it is this kind of like, uh, this, this, this sense of this is not, this is not something that I willed. This is not something that I planned. Um, and I was not asked whether this was going to be okay with me. Um, and she talks about, like, um, the piece talks about essentially 
being hospitable with your body as the first kind of hospitality that we all like none of us would be here if our mothers hadn't been hospitable with their bodies and that it's it's kind of a um she calls it an active passivity which i thought was a really um fascinating way to think about it and it actually this is really weird connection but like it reminded me of um you know pete in your lead editorial for this piece for this issue you talked about the connection that saint thomas makes between meekness and magnanimity and that had been kind of rattling around in my head for a while and i can't remember when i thought of it but like i i realized that like the you know the magnificat in latin the first couple of lines are um what would it be? It would be uh, Magnificat Anima Mea. It's like she, my soul magnifies, my soul magnifies the, Lord. the Lord. And that, like that Magnificat Anima, that is magnanimity. And I thought, I mean, obviously it's not magnanimity the way that Aristotle would have described it, but it is the kind of meek magnanimity that you call Marian magnanimity, which I really feel like Gracie um, exhibits. It's a kind of great souledness of hospitality and of making room for other people and not on your own terms and not according to what they can do for you, but according to, um, the the greatness of what you can, what you can do for them and the space that you can make for them. And that, I don't know, I really, her piece is really moving to me. You know, you're saying about Aquinas's point that, um, meekness and magnanimity are kind of two sides of the same virtue almost um reminds me that there's a theme in anabaptist thought going back to the very beginning but actually extending behind them to the medieval mystics to to meister eckhart and to suso of uh what the anabaptists call galassenheit and it is this active passivity uh that you just mentioned uh a letting go and it's a huge thing in Anabaptist thought that discipleship consists of that active decision to let go of of leaving yourself in the hands of God um, and it's in that sense that what Gracie's writing about ties in directly to the themes of nonviolence that we're talking about elsewhere because really that attitude is the same of I'm not going to take my life into my own hands. I'm not going to take a situation under my own control that if my faith is real, I am okay. Um, letting go, choosing to let go, choosing to allow myself to be passive, not vis-a-vis other people, but toward God and to, to what, what he has in mind for me. Um, in this case, a baby whom, is now born and whom she's loved and is thrilled by. So uh, we don't want to over overdo um, the negative side. It did strike me too, and this is maybe changing the subject a bit, that this story gets at a different register of what it means to be pro-life than you see in a lot of the pro-life movement. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, Susanna, because it's a time, you know, we're in a cultural environment where on the one hand they say, according to surveys, that pro-life sense is alive and well uh, and actually potentially growing in the younger cohorts. On the other hand, it's not a terrifically pro-life climate in our politics right now. And so 
what might a kind of pro-life movement that embraces this kind of magnanimity and generosity uh, look like? And I thought that without answering such a huge question, um, Gracie's essay, just in the way she talks about it and the honesty that, of which she approaches it in um, the kind of vulnerability at which she goes about it suggests, I think, perhaps a more Christian way of being pro-life, of advocating for the rights of the unborn. I mean, I, I agree. It's also, it's one of these things where like, um, you know, I've, I've been pro-life for longer than I've been Christian, actually. And um, it took me one of the scariest changes, other than becoming pro-life in general, which was terrifying, because um, I thought I was, I don't know, I, I was going to get like, whatever, rejected by my <laughs> friends and family. Um, which they did not turn out to be the case. Um, but one of the sort of transformations of c ways that I've gone about being pro-life um, has been to move from a discussion of like the right to life um, away from away from that and away from a kind of rights-based discussion to just like, what is the good here? Like, what is the, is there a good in um, the existence of human beings? Is there a good in um, a human baby, however and wherever, um, wh whether or not that baby was planned? And is that a good that we can do our best to kind of make room for? Um, so it's, it's very much like, if there is a kind of I, you know, I, I, the question of like legalities, I'm, I'm not saying that there's no room for legal activism in, in pro-life stuff, but Gracie's piece is not about legalities. It's not about whether or not abortion should be legal. It's about like what it means to, um, to be a woman who has a body that can carry children, what it means to find yourself pregnant, what it means to find, um, something happening in your life that you did not plan and what it means to honor the honor that gift um even if it's a really difficult gift to honor and i mean i guess one of the things that i am committed to you know as a pro-life person is kind of making doing my best to as a as a woman and as a friend and um you know politically as well, making it easier for women to experience even unexpected pregnancies as something that they can say yes to and as something that they can experience as gifts. Um, and making it less a question of like needing to fight with your body to, you know, to dun down its fertility or to like make it like less out of control or more organized or less, um, you know, less of an intrusion on the plans that you've made in the world and just allow, allow it to be the case that like our bodies are not always that organized and our families are not all always that organized, but that God wills that life happen and we be fruitful and multiply. And that just kind of happens sometimes. And Hey, let's, let's try and make a society where it's, where it's not as difficult to rejoice in that. And a society where, you know, I think it takes us back to a discussion we had 
some months ago with Ross Douthat and with others uh, in regard to the article I mentioned, to the point that every child is a a planned child, it kind of actually puts a burden on those kids um, to be planned. Uh, They're a a choice. They then very quickly become a lifestyle choice uh, and from there quickly become a lifestyle accessory. Whereas the unplannedness of night uh, of life, uh, I think Michael Sandel uh, talks about welcoming the unbidden. Right, uh, it's such an important part of just accepting that we're human beings. That there's actually so much of life that we can't plan, that we can't embrace, uh, that we must embrace, even though we didn't choose it. Uh, it's something that happens to us. That can sound very kind of uh, philosophical, but it, it really does seem to me to hang together really centrally with the questions of, of violence and nonviolence because it, it's really a, a question of overall attitude to life and it's only in those contexts that things like being pro-life or entertaining the thought of being nonviolent make any sense. Uh, they're not sort of standalone ethical principles that you, yeah, you, you can sort of deduce them from other things if you, you know, are a Christian and believe certain things, but they really only make sense to you in terms of the heart if, if your whole attitude to life is ultimately the one that Mary expresses in the Magnificat, let it be you know, uh, actually before the Magnificat, let it be done according to, uh, to me according to your will. And it's in that sense that so many of the things that we've been talking about in these episodes really do hang together in some kind of interesting ways. Um, I mean, it's weird. Like, one of the... We didn't have a piece on this, but we could have. Maybe we, sh- maybe we can, like, figure out a way to scare up a piece for it on the, in the nature issue. Um, one of the things that Gracie focuses on in her book and in the rest of her work is... It's what's essentially biodynamic farming. Um, so farming, a, a version of kind of Wendell Berry farming that does not, um, that basically is a t- an attempt to do the human task, the, the creation mandate of um, working with the earth to make it more fruitful rather than a kind of vision of what farming or gardening is, which is like imposing your will on the earth in a kind of Baconian scientific um, reductionist way to make it be um, fertile according to your your plans. Um, and one of the things, you know, I've spent a, a lot of my life trying to figure out how to kind of talk to lefties about being pro-life, um, just because I kind of am a lefty still in a lot of ways, and a lot of my family are, and and also just because it feels to me like it's never made a huge amount of sense to me that something like the environmental conservation movement and something like the pro-life movement are on opposite sides of the political fence. Um, and, you know, Gracie's whole book, from what I can tell, and a lot of the work that she does has to do with, um, like, really honoring the, be, being nonviolent towards the land. 
and being nonviolent, not in a kind of passive way, not in a way where like every human interaction with with nature makes nature worse and humans are the disease and we need to just like not, um, you know, just do ha- be hands off or else we're being violent towards nature. That's actually very much the opposite of what she thinks. She thinks that there is a role for humans in farming, in gardening, in making the, the land more fruitful, um, in cultivation, but that one, one does that by understanding the kind of selfhood almost of the place that you're, that you're farming and um, the, the integrity of the other creatures that you're, that you're working with. And her, her work actually reminds me not just of Wendell Berry, but also of the um, Bruderhof farmer poet Philip Britz, whose book Water at the Roots um, just reminded me a huge amount of a lot of the things that Gracie writes about, um, which we can probably drop a link to that plowed book in the show notes. We'll now move to our customary intermezzo, where we trade news from the wider plow community. Susanna, what's going on uh, downstate? Well, okay, so I got the okay from um, friend of the pod slash uh, plow writer Tara Burton to say this. Um, I so I have I have COVID, y'all. I I don't have COVID. Uh, I think I am now not contagious. They say that I am not contagious anymore. And I'm actually today I'm allowed to go outside. I've not yet gone outside. It's very exciting to me. Um, But my first post self isolation outing is going to be Tara and her husband Don and Jay, who's also written for plows first wedding anniversary, which is on Sunday. Um, As you can imagine, that means that they had a freaky emergency COVID wedding one year ago you know, on Sunday, which I heard about, which I was one of two witnesses to. And they called me up on Friday and <laughs> it was like, they called me up on Friday. Cause so we, you know, this is a year ago. None of us knew anything. We thought that like the apocalypse was going to happen, which it did. Um, but we didn't know what that would mean. So basically this was like in New York when we heard on Friday that after Sunday, um, like after Sunday at 8 p.m., New York was going to shut down. And we didn't know what that meant, but um, Tara and Don and Jay had, you know, been engaged and had been planning to kind of get married in May or June or something. And um, suddenly that seemed like it might not be possible because, like, the world might come to an end or something. So um, I got the call on Friday, and on Sunday I showed up in Central Park um with a, a bottle of Veuve Clicquot, so it was not Prosecco, it was the good stuff. And then um, our friend Allison was there with a, mag- a cake from Magnolia, and all we had was champagne and cake, and then we had Tara and Don and Jay, and then we had Father Bloom, who's the um, Episcopal priest. And he just married them under uh, a tree in Central Park, and it was... Um, a a weird emergency COVID wedding and it was absolutely fantastic. And we spent the rest of the summer kind of like that, that whole kind of gang of weird Christians uh, just met up under that tree periodically to lounge around outside because it was COVID safe. Um, And now I I think we might actually be having the anniversary party under the tree as well. Well, since we've been on the theme of babies, um, coincidentally, 
what's happened here in Fox Hill Bruderhof community was the dedication of a baby, which is always really sweet. But this one was especially nice. It was the other day because both parents had their birthday on the same day. You know, people often ask uh, us as an Adventist community, you only baptize adults. So what happens when a baby comes? Uh, going back to actually the very beginning of Anabaptism, there has been baby dedications. So they bring the baby in and show it around, and the baby usually cries uh, and uh, is very sweet. And then the baby is given over to the elders of the church to pray and then handed back to the parents to raise in the fear of God, basically. And we usually read from the prayer of Simeon and Anna, and uh, usually it's time to close after that. Baby needs to get home. So that was our uh, a highlight of our week here. And uh, just always wonderful to, as a parent, always meant a lot to me to know that my child was part of the community, welcomed into the church, and uh, would be I would be accompanied as a parent, you know, through all the things that would come, which, you know, now that I'm teenagers, definitely uh, I count on. Well, it's great to uh, welcome uh, Zito Madhu, one of uh, my favorite writers and a longtime plow contributor. I think, Zito, you've written six pieces for us. I have. Including a piece in our new issue uh, called The Great Escape. And it tells the stories of how uh, rap music is a form of escape and also of survivor's remorse music. Uh, it's just a, a beautifully written piece. You know, what I love about each of your essays, Zito, is there's always a few things f from everything that you write for us that kind of sticks in my mind. You know, afterwards, it's a, a turn of phrase, an observation, or a, a juxtaposition I wouldn't have thought of. And this one, it was how you got from Styles P to Oedipus and André G. <laughs> <laughs> that was a classic Zito move. That was great. And the interesting thing was that Andre Gide, uh Legend of Oedipus, I think it's in a book of his uh, called Two Legends, is really, really hard to find. So my first question is, how, how did you run into the Andre Gide, uh story? So, um, you know, I, there's the book that I'm working on <laughs> about like labyrinths and minotaurs and things like that. And, you know, the Theseus story there is like, you know, very vital. And if you're talking about the Minotaur, Theseus is like the counterpart. And so I was just reading everything about like the Minotaur and like Theseus and everything. And he, he like the story consistently came up and I looked at, I was searching for the book and I was like, oh, this is, uh, this is going to be hard and expensive. To <laughs> and then, but I have one of my friends who used to be my old mentor, not mentor, but like editor. And I, t I was talking to him about it. And next thing you know, he like sent me a tracking number like a week later with the book. <laughs> and so I was like very happy about it. But it's a very short book, both stories. And so it's like, that's so much money for 50 pages. But I have it around here somewhere. <laughs> that's a lot of money for a miniature. Zito, let's back up and, and could you just uh, walk us through your article? Um, when we were talking first about doing an issue around violence and nonviolence, um, you know, I believe we were talking about a piece on the violence of poverty, just the way poverty grinds people down um, in body and spirit. And uh, out of it, you know, came this really memorable piece with uh, 
references to more songs than you could imagine. Uh, and also some storytelling, you know, from your own youth. Yeah, yeah. So when we were talking about the, you know, violence, I thought, I thought like structural violence is always where you start. And so violence of poverty, I think, was a really good topic. And so being me being like a very big rap fan and been listening to it, like I grew up in Detroit, inner city Detroit. And so I've just been listening to rap forever. And it, it was just a very, I guess, direct line for me, where it's like in a lot of rap songs, you get almost like this very, this big criticism of poverty and like a straight line of how poverty leads to like individual violence and where poverty comes from and like the effects that it has on a person. And it's always been interesting to me that, you know, rap has a lot of criticism, like a lot of fair criticism. So, but there's one specific thing that they keep pointing out. Like, for example, if I wanted to talk about police violence, I could give you a long line of songs where people like the rappers are talking about police violence. But the thing is like, for me, Rap has always just been born out of that, of like a certain people with a certain background in the United States. And so I just thought that it would be a very interesting thing to draw out that long history of rappers given like this, uh, basically what is just like a dissertation on structured violence. The song that I use for it, because like Styles P has always been fascinated to me. I think even I, I wrote it in an essay that his type of rap feels more literary fiction than like the super fantastical. And that's always the thing that kind of made him a bit dangerous more than the other rappers. Because sometimes you could listen to a rapper and just like, oh, this is just they're creating fiction about the certain themes that come in rap. But with somebody like him, it's like, you have uh, an access to his background. Like, you know, these things are true mm-hmm. in a way. And so when he talks about these things, he's not creating fiction. He's just telling you, he's more like relaying information, even though sometimes they exaggerate things like how how many cars they have or how many houses they have. But when they get to things about like the violence and like the drugs, and I think for him, a big thing for him was always the people that he also lost as a you know just throughout his life and he so he has a lot of songs about like his little brother and like his little cousins and things like that so the song that i use for it was one is his most famous song and i thought that there's a there's a very uh wonderful contradiction with the song that like the chorus of it is very upbeat that it makes it sound like a fun song but if you look at what he's saying in the song it's like very very dark and the line that I pulled out from it was him saying that, like, if you see things like I see things, I'm going to die in the hood. And it's just like in this very popular radio song. And I, uh, that ended up being the line that I connected to the Oedipus story. Because the in the Oedipus story, Oedipus has, I think, one of the best monologues that I've ever, for me, in, like, the Greek stories, where... Uh, it's at the end when he finds out all the information, you know, they're telling him not to dig deeper, like not to find this out because it's going to ruin his life. It's going to ruin his kingdom. And he was laughing at it because it was such a ridiculous thing for somebody to tell somebody like Oedipus not to do is don't don't be yourself. Right. Don't dig deeper. Don't look out for this knowledge. And so he has this monologue where he talks about how. 
uh, basically him arriving at the point where he finds all this information and finds the truth about his life was inescapable because the minute that he has the like the little nugget of knowledge, he's always going to find out and like pull himself into oblivion. And so he was talking about how cruel the trap was from the start because, you know, I think the thing about the story is that he's just he's just like a pawn in this entire big story. Like you have this life that set out this like cycle already determined before you're born and he just has to walk through the cycle. And so he laughs about how much of a trap that it is. And he said that when he was younger, he always thought that, you know, he was achieving all these things because of his individual gifts and because of his power and like because of his intelligence and how when he was young, he didn't have anything like material. He left his adopted father's home, but he has so much hope in his future because he saw he was rich with all the possibilities of what he could be. And so I saw that as like almost as such a direct contradiction of something that the thing that Styles P said, which is it wasn't that he had possibilities. He was very directly saying because of where he was born, because of the social conditions that he's born, he's going to die here. And he already knows he's going to die here. And this is how he's med- medicating that situation, right? The whole song is about him smoking, him like committing violence, all of these things as like self-medication. And the the conclusion is like, because he's no, he knows he's like trapped within this cycle and he's going to die in this cycle. Where Oedipus, before he knew he was trapped in the cycle, he just thought that he had the world of possibilities to himself. And so I think I ended up contrasting that even with at the end where Oedipus finds everything else and he's like condemned, uh, et cetera. But he's not truly condemned because even at the end, he still, like his grave is made sacred to the gods. He still has almost a, a sort of dignity to himself, even as a ruined king. And it's something that someone like Styles P could never have. Like, Oedipus could only fall so low as a king, as somebody who the gods had picked to be in this cycle in the first place. Where if you're somebody who lives in the margin of, margins of society, if you're somebody who is already condemned from society, you are you don't get that type of dignity, right? Like, you just... There's not gods caring for you and, and making sure your gravesite is honored. Yeah, right? like, you don't get that. You're just... I think the thing about rappers is, like, they're exceptions who remember that they're exceptions to the rule. So they like they they rap about being exceptional people, but because they've lost so many people to the general violence, they just never forget. They know that they're lucky to escape more than it is just like a a factor of their individual ability that everybody else has failed to achieve. And so, like someone like Styles P just cannot forget that like his brother died has died in the same type of situation, or that his friends have died in the same type of situation. And so I just always thought that that was like an interesting thing to combine. You know, one one part that stuck out uh, for me from your 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 piece, Zito, uh, I'll just read it. Actually, you're talking about your your high school, and uh, Northwestern High School was dangerous. There were fights, shootings, drinking, unsafe sex, police officers constantly circulating outside and inside the school, and occasionally actual deaths. There was fun and joy as well, but ever-present tension, especially because I knew the kids there as full people with ambitions and baggage which limited them. The trap was no more escapable for being clearly visible. The rap music that comes out of this background acts as a platform for grief, a survivor's remorse music. Uh, 
great line. And then you tell the story of a friend of yours um, who experienced exactly that, right? Who kind of repeated the same line Styles P said and, and it actually happened to him? Yeah, so I think I always tell people like going to Northwestern is probably the most defining thing in my life. And it really helped me understand so much of how the world works. Because so before I went to Northwestern, I went to the school called Cass Technical High School, which you have to pass like an entrance exam to get to. And it's like the best school in Detroit and like Michigan. So I got I had the the test results. I got in. After a year, I got kicked off for fighting naturally. <laughs> and I went to Northwestern and I was like trying to tell my my dad, who's like bitterly disappointed and like it made them angry, that like me being at Northwestern was a good thing in a sense that, first of all, I felt much more comfortable with like those kids who were having the same like issues that I was. But also in a school like Northwestern, you actually get to see what happens to people who are I guess society is kind of already deemed as like not going to be worth saving. Right. So you have all these kids like at, at Cass, you have all the exceptional kids, the super smart ones, the, the ones with privilege, the ones whose parents can like afford to pay for stuff at Northwestern. You have like the work, the normal kids who probably won't make it, who are just trying to, you know, try their best within the conditions that they have. And so you just see, for example, you see like the kids who drop out of high school, not because of anything, just because like they can't afford to keep coming. Like there's family situations that make learning impossible for them or just there's like uh, conditions around it. And so it was, it, it was interesting to see those people, right? Like to be one of those kids who the school system looks at and says, you're going to have to like give up on this kid because he does he's not raising your test scores. And in order to get like a certain funding for the school, you need high test scores. And so I had naturally I had those friends and seeing like some of my friends who end up end up like getting into that type of violence and like dying or seeing not even those people who just die because there's different types of grief of like people going to jail and being disappeared within the system. And then you have the other instances of just people failing and never reaching the possible heights that somebody at CAS would reach. And so it, I think it informs so much as I like being one of those people that is not exceptional because you really understand how little or not how little care is given to the, the ones who aren't exceptional, but how hard it is to fight out of that condition and so the so many pressures that are against those type of people. So like at Northwest at Northwest and I saw a little bit of everything, right? Like not even that I saw, but I also participated because I was a bad kid back then. <laughs> but yeah, I really I, I always I always position it as like I saw like the real human life in in a city like Detroit because I was amongst those type of people. And then you also see how how hard those kids try. And even even like the violent ones that would explicitly tell you like the type of like normal things that they would want. But seems so like when I t talk about my friend who ends up like buying a house in the suburbs <laughs> and has like a boat and how ridiculous that is. If you come from a place like Detroit and you have the medium income is like twenty six thousand dollars 
and the kids are just like super poor and everybody's like trying their hardest or working in factories. And then you're just like, I have a house in the suburbs now and I have a boat. And it's just the most ridiculous concept. But yeah, I think Northwestern was just a very, a very great experience in that in in that uh realm that it just taught me so much about oh this is these are the people that you should be with and these are the people who probably need help the most well on to recommendations so it's spring and we have a new issue of our magazine as you've no doubt seen and it has a lamb on it and so my recommendation has to do with cooking lamb and it goes back to an old farmer friend of mine in Eastern Germany, Achim Baer, who first showed me how to butcher lambs and then taught me this traditional recipe, which I bet you don't know. So that's why I want to sh share it with you. You take the complete stomach flap of a sheep and you skin it and you smear it with mustard and you sprinkle caraway on it. And then you take the kidneys and you slice them thinly and scatter them over the top. And you roll the whole up like an enormous crepe. And then you fry it and you pour beer over it. And then you cook it really long and slow, about 12 hours. And you eat it and it's the best lamb that you can even imagine. And I just can only recommend it to you. Um, I can't send you a link for the recipe because I've never seen this anywhere else, but it's awesome. So, Susanna, do you have recommendations? Maybe something less sheep-related? I mean, this is not at all sheep-related. I'm um, I'm both, like, a, a stunned and intrigued by the sheep stomach crepe situation. But, um, yeah, at some point I would, I would like to try that. My first recommendation is, as we've discussed, Gracie Olmsted's new book, Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. It's actually edited by another friend of the pod, Bria Sanford at Sentinel Books. Um, and I have not read the book yet, um, but I have read a ton of other things that Gracie has written. And knowing her, it's going to be a lyrically written and personal and interesting and deeply faithful, but not at all cheesy, um, reflection on place and family and legacy. So um, I'm really psyched to read it. You should be too. And I've gotten about 50 pages in and everything you said about the book is right. That's all for this episode of the Plowcast. Give us a like, give us a rating, give us a review wherever you're listening to this or get in touch with us. Let us know how we can do this better. Uh, give us, you know, flattering uh, feedback or negative feedback uh, or whatever. We just want to hear from you. And make sure to check back with us next week. Mm -hmm.